You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 48. How do we choose a leader in such a way that it is hard to game or manipulate that system? So if I prefer A to B and then C shows up, I should not all of a sudden prefer B to A. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Uh, it was great to start off the year with that comedy show. That was a lot of fun. I, uh, Man, we dropped, uh, you know, some of you have better things to do on Christmas and New Year's than listen to The Local Maximum. I'm not judging, but it looks like you're all back now. And, uh, and that's great because we have a whole lot of of guests lined up for 2019. I've got a lot of really fantastic guests. Um, and if you have suggestions for more, localmaxradio at gmail.com um, because, you know, this is year two of the Local Maximum, so we're going to get some some great guests. It's January. It's, uh, it's kind of getting dark. It's kind of getting cold. You, you need something to cheer you up. So new Local Maximum is going to come out every week. It's going to continue. Um, today... Today is a great discussion. It's all about social choice theory and voting. Uh, the world has a lot of different voting systems. If you go to different countries and uh, with different choices on who gets to vote, how the votes are counted, how many rounds there are, who gets on the ballot. And you can have many voting systems that look different, but it can't really be said that one is superior to another in every way. There are trade-offs. And um, lest you think it's just about government. It's not just government representation when we have elections. Organizations have elections, clubs, corporate boards. Uh, there are voting schemes all over the place in your life. So if you're an anarchist, you don't like to vote uh, for, for your representative, you're still going to have to vote. And whatever voting system you use to determine what the outcome is, uh, or whatever voting system that, that you use uh, could determine what the outcome is, and it will determine you know, who holds the power in that organization. So to find out more about this, I'm bringing Daniel Kronovit back on the show. We discussed information last year, information theory last year in episode 19, and now we're discussing social choice theory. He also has a new paper out on voting for budgets in the crypto ecosystem with the Ethereum company Colony, and we'll link that in as well. I'll recap Daniel's bio because it's relevant here. Daniel Kronovit is a data scientist with a focus in machine learning and a special interest in voting and governance. He is currently working as a blockchain engineer at Colony, an Ethereum startup. And before that, he was a machine learning engineer at Foursquare. He has a master's in math and computer science from Columbia and a BA in political economy and cognitive science from UC Berkeley. All right. Daniel Kronovet, welcome back to the show. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Thank you, Max. Good to be here. I it's uh, it's thank you so much for coming back. Uh, I know I got a lot out of our discussion last time when we talked about information theory. Um, sort of like, and even after we had that discussion, I kind of went back into it and looked at like, okay, what does a fractional bit mean? And like, you know, mind blown. So I love having these discussions with you. And, um, and I'm happy to come back on the show today uh, to talk about social choice theory and about uh, that new paper that you have out. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's, it's something that has been on my mind for a long time and I, I think has a lot of implications for the world we live in. So I, I think it's, it's a great topic and I'm happy that you're, you were interested in it as well. All right. So I, you've been interested in social choice theory for a while, as have I. Um, I know I was a little confused with definitions because I'm always getting confused between social choice theory and public choice theory. So what? how would you define social choice theory? Totally. So, I mean, I guess the place to start will be with, uh, with the Wikipedia definition, which I'll just, I'll just read out for the, for the audience. Let's so, go. So social choice theory or social choice is a theoretical framework for analysis of combining individual opinions, preferences, interests, or welfares to reach a collective decision or social welfare in some sense. And so basically, right. yeah. And so basically what that means is we want some way of, of gathering the opinions of a large amount of people, aggregating and combining them together and figuring out what action should we take as a group that is in the interest of individuals as much as possible. So people think uh, elections, but it doesn't have to be a traditional election as we, as we conceive of it, right? Um, no, it does not. But a lot of, a lot of social choice revolves around how we how we 
we could say that a lot of it does revolve around elections and how we choose, how we, how do we choose a leader um, or how do we, how do we choose a leader from a number, for a number of options in such a way that it is hard to, to game or manipulate that system um, as much as possible. And that it is most flexible and sort of is able to most accurately represent the desires of the people. Um, But, but beyond, beyond electing individuals, we can talk about applying this as we'll talk about later to things like financial management and budgeting. But, you know, if you read a lot of the social choice literature, um, a big emphasis is on is on voting. Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of the mathematics in social choice theory, a lot of the, the, the theoretical framework was created in the early 20th century. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, say early to mid. Um, I know yeah. in Arrow, the, in, an economist laid a lot of the groundwork and he was writing in the mid 20th century. Yeah. But okay. The, yeah. We'll let's go that. back, you know, like Condorcet, who is a French mathematician who was writing in the, I want to say like the 18th century. So right. people have been, people have been thinking about these things for a long time. I know well, that Arrow. I was even, yeah. I was even going to say like the founding fathers of the United States when developing the constitution, they didn't have the, the, the same language, but the, what they were, dis- if you read some of those discussions, they were discussing issues that would become social choice theory. Absolutely. And it's funny, funny, funny mention that I've been, you know, my, my life has gotten very boring lately and I spent a lot of time reading um, like old philosophy and I've been reading the Federalist Papers. And that doesn't um, sound boring at all. It's interesting yeah. to me, but yeah, um, but, the, but it is interesting to go over these early Daniel, discussions. I, before you say that, I just want to say I was uh, doing this podcast in front of uh, in front of the office the other day and I in, at the talent show and I was like, who wants to hear a lecture on Bayesian inference? Expecting people to like say no, and I would go on to the next thing, and everyone was like, "Yeah!" So they would have done it. But uh, so anyway, go go ahead. <laughs> this uh, stuff is interesting to my audience. Absolutely, is what I meant to say. But yeah, but I mean, um, but to your point, I you know the question of how do we elect leaders, how do we put people into power, is a question that we've been asking for a very long time. You know, even even the Federalist Papers. You know, the Alexander Hamilton talks about like the Greek republics and the Greek federations and, and, and their attempts at organizing themselves to to avoid power being put into the wrong hands. And, you know, there's lessons from that. So, I mean, the, the social choice is something that we've been doing implicitly um, for for as long as we've been living together as, as people. And so I, I guess, I guess the, the novelty has not been the problem that we're solving, but rather the, the, the degree of, of formal tools we have to, to think about the different answers. So in, right. in that sense, that's been that's been sort of more recent. But the questions are as old as we are. Yeah. Yes. That's really interesting because all the institutions we have is, are kind of a mixture of trial and error and um, someone sitting down and trying to think about it. And, um, you know, some some constitutions stand the test of time and some don't. And so that's uh, that is a, a, a very interesting discussion, which I think might take us down a road. We don't want to go down, but it is definitely uh, an issue we could talk about later. Absolutely. Um, okay. So what does social choice theory, or at least your view on it, have to say about elections as they are held in the U.S.? Um, specifically, I'm talking about the elections for Congress, Senate, or Governor, where uh, there are these multi-party elections where voters can vote for a single candidate, and each candidate competes for the most votes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, like... Kind of one of the questions that you're getting at is is a is a simple majority winner system the best or is one where multiple parties can kind of win um, good or one where it's a single vote and the plurality winner wins like we have in the United States or one where there's like kind of instant runoff and in kind of right. the kind of the kind Different of the lessons do it very differently exactly and sort of like the the I guess like the, the the high level lesson is that there's no system that is 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 optimal under all conditions that every system has a scenario where it can it can fail in the sense that the person who comes into power is not necessarily the one that the most people want. Um, or the one, or, or we can say that there are situations where we don't know who the winner is. And so there, there's no, there's no system that we know of that will always say, given any input, we'll give you the best winner. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, that's, and it, yeah. And that's kind of the world. I, that I, I was, when I was younger, I was way more sure of my ideas of, Oh, we have to do this, this, and this, and that'll make our elections better. And now I still have ideas. But I'm not as sure about them. I, so, I guess we can say. Yeah, I mean, um, like, so like one 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 thing we could say is that you know with a two party system, um, the the actual voting process is a bit simpler because you know the the plurality there's you know majority wins. 
but that leads yeah. to much larger changes in, in, in who's in power. And so one could say that even though the voting method is simpler, um, there, there's, there's more noise in, in, in the output because you have a big power shift and that has consequences. You know, and right, then, right. And one could say so, that, you know, one could say that like a parliamentary system where you have multiple parties all sort of, um, all sort of competing and you can have a couple parties pick up seats here and there, there's less of an abrupt power shift. But what you have then is that these, some minority parties can have a lot of power. Like what you see in, um, what you see in, for example, Israel, where I live is that it's a parliament. And so you have multiple parties in office, but because, be, because the main party still has to form a coalition to govern, you still need a majority to govern. You end up having these small parties with six or seven seats that have a lot of sway because they, they ultimately, they're ultimately the ones that are the, the, the power brokers. Um, and so they have a lot of say. So you have that right. consequence. So, you know, so for- there's, there's no way out really. Yeah, and so for people who are uh, you know unfamiliar with it, uh, Israel is on a, um, I believe it's a proportional vote system. So yeah. if your party gets thirty percent of the votes, then you get thirty percent of the seats in parliament, and so and then you have to form a coalition, which means getting smaller parties uh, involved. There's no incentive to vote for one of the main parties, um, whereas in the American system, you have s- districts where you can have you know, three, four, five, many candidates running, but there's a tendency towards the two-party system when you have kind of this first-past-the-post system because um, there's this sort of spoiler, uh, this spoiler effect where if you elect a third party, you're essentially, um, people think they might be better off trying to pick the lesser of two evils among the two main parties because that could actually flip the result. Exactly. Um, which, I which mean, I've done both. Yeah. yeah. Which is the famously what occurred in the 2000 United States election. Yeah. 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 And it, and it happens over and over. Um, but on the other hand, with, uh, with the congressional districts and I'll never, or maybe we'll talk about the Senate. I'll never understand that whole thing of drawing the districts, which mm. uh, actually we did talk about that. I think in episode four, we talked, we had, a, we, did have a little discussion on gerrymandering, so I'll link to that. Um, but you could also say there's an interesting aspect of the American system where I have a congressman. Um, maybe I voted for him, maybe I didn't, but I have a specific person whose job it is to represent me, whereas totally. in some parliamentary systems, that the particularly a proportional system, that, uh, that might not happen. So it kind of depends on what you want, and sometimes it's uh, it, there are a lot of things to consider in the theory. Um, so I got, I kind of got into a big fight on Facebook earlier this year. I think I told you about this a little bit online. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened. Um, so some States, uh, I think it's two States in the U S California and Louisiana and one country, notably France have this voting system where, uh, there's a two round system. So you have a bunch of parties running, a bunch of parties field these candidates, and then whoever are the top two vote getters, they go on to the next round. And then there's kind of a, quote, simpler, I guess, uh, system where people just decide between the two remaining. And I kind of had a throwaway line like, oh, this seems crazy. Like, I don't know. I was probably just watching TV and uh, decided to tweet that for some reason. Mm -hmm. And people on Facebook were just getting angry at me. They they, They were like... You know, you, you know, you're upholding an anti-democratic system. <laughs> they, you know, and they, um, you know, they tried to, uh, you know, tell me, you know, haven't you heard about Arrow's theorem? Which, yes, I know Arrow's theorem, which we're going to get to in a second. Totally. Uh, but uh, it, and so I wasn't upset that they disagreed. I was just upset with the way they did it, which is unfortunately totally. how a lot of things happen online. Um, well, I want to uh, hear your your take on that. I guess I would. My argument on that system is that I think when you have the two-round system, you end up in the first round with several different parties who are kind of competitive, and they all get around maybe you know a bunch of parties with 25, 30% of the vote. And so it some t- in some cases, kind of ends up with at a, in, in like a crapshoot as who gets into the second round based mm-hmm. on kind of these fluctuations. And so sometimes, oftentimes, you get like these crazy candidates in the second round um, Famously in Louisiana, uh, I think it was 1991 or 1992, you had, uh, there was like a corrupt guy who was running again, Edwin Edwards. I don't know exactly what he was doing. He was stealing or something. And then he fielded a bunch of, he kind of had people help a bunch of other candidates. And so his opponent in the runoff ended up being uh, David Duke, the Mm kind of former Klansman. And so then he could beat that guy like 90 to 10. 
And then in France, kind of a similar thing happened in 2002 with the National Front getting in with and losing to 90% of vote. Similar thing happened this uh, in 2017 with the National Front, although I, I don't know, the way things are going in France now, maybe that will be one of the main parties. But uh, wh- what do you think about that? Um, what do you think about that system? Totally. So, so first, I want to share. You, you mentioned that you, you know, you, you were talking on, on on social media, and you got a lot of flat. You got a lot of flack. One yeah. thing. One thing I'll say is that uh, I remember there's there's a great Andy Warhol quote where he says, uh, you know, never read what they write about you, just count the inches. Um, okay. What, what does that mean to count the inches? It's like it doesn't matter what they say, whether it's good or bad. All that you care about is how much they're saying about you. Oh. You know, so if, you know, if, if there's twenty, you know, if twenty five inches in the newspaper of of, of bitter critique. You know, that's 25 inches they're devoting to you. And I, right. his meaning was, you know, the, the important thing is that you're, you're making an impact on people and people are reacting to you. And that whether it's yeah. positive or negative is almost like less important. You know, like, well, that's that's the reason why I think this discussion is going to have uh, is I don't think people are going to get angry because it's not a throwaway line. But I think I think it will spark discussion. Totally. Um, but yeah, but but to your point, I mean. So, so kind of the, the main, the main drawback with these, these instant runoff or, or multiple round systems is that you can get these situations where by moving by, you know, by having voters shift towards a candidate that they, that they prefer, um, that candidate might end up losing. And so generally the way, the way that people analyze these systems is they say, all right, we have some set of preferences, some state of votes, and let, let's adjust the votes in a certain way, in a certain direction towards a candidate and see how that affects the outcome. And what we'll have here, you know, what, what we can have here is that, you know, say there's like candidate A, B, and C, and you know, candidate, candidate, uh, candidate B, you know, candidate B is winning, and you want candidate C to win, and yeah. so you shift people's preferences more towards C, but you might have a case where by moving them to C, in fact, A wins, um, or or maybe C yeah. is winning, but somehow you move it more towards C, and then C all of a sudden loses. Because when you have these multiple rounds, you have these interactions where the preferences, the first round involve all the candidates. And then in the second round, the preferences might change. So although we'd like to think that people will just shift from a loser to a winner in some like clean, straightforward way, but the interactions are going to be more complicated. And so you, you might have winners emerge from these systems that are not the ones that you would have expected. Um, and that, that sort of, that sort of, and that goes back to the point at the beginning where, you know, these systems work well under many conditions, but there are always these edge cases where the system will lead to someone coming into power who no one really wanted. And then that's like a problem for social choice because that was not the social choice. And yet the mechanism that we have led to, led to an outcome that no one really wanted. Yeah. And it's also an interesting part is I think a lot of these systems assume that there's going to be strategic voting. Um, but in, in the real world, there is kind of a mixture of people who are voting very strategically and people who are, you know, just voting for their first choice. Um, I feel like, and I don't know, you might agree that if we had a system where uh, people can rank candidates, there's a lot more that we can do with that uh, to get everyone's preferences. But I don't know if there could be a cultural shift to, um, uh, to allow people to accept that as happening. Totally. But, but I would say even systems like that have their own failure conditions. So there, there, there's, a, there's sure. a method called a board account where, uh, okay. where you basically rank all the candidates and a candidate is assigned a number of points relative to their position. So if there's five candidates, the first candidate gets five points, the second candidate gets four points, all the way to the last candidate who gets one point. And then you just right. add, you add up their points and that's the winner. Um, and so that's right. based on ranking. Um, but but, but yeah. that, that, you know, that has its own failure conditions where there, there's there's a term which we'll get into a little bit later when we talk about Eros theorem, but one one of the yeah there can be a condition where changing the votes from you know candidates B and C can make A lose even though A wasn't involved, and so there, yeah. there's, there's these interactions that occur even in systems like that which some would say are undesirable. Well, others well were, yeah, that, that's crazy. I also with the board account, like if I knew my second choice was going to get, um, you know, was going to get four, and my first choice was going to get five. But I feel felt like my first choice really had a chance to win, and the second choice was the only one who might beat them. Then I might rank my first choice last because I don't want them to beat my my second choice last because I don't want them to beat my first choice. Absolutely, and that that's a that's a common sort of failure condition. And, and um, so a lot of people, you know, we'll also I think we'll come back around to this later. But you know, because of these things, a lot of people started to analyze these electoral systems through the lens of game theory, saying you have all these people that are going to be voting strategically. 
And how can we design a system so that even if people are voting strategically, the outcome is still optimal? Because what people are finding is that, you know, these voting systems have like, these equilibria, which are suboptimal. And so everyone individually motivated to vote strategically is going to lead to an outcome for the group that is suboptimal from what we wanted. Um, yeah. And so, and so there's a concept of strategy-proof systems. And that, that the term strategy-proof means that even if people are attempting to, to vote optimally for themselves, that, that the, the best strategy for them is to just do like the right thing or to vote in their interests. Um, and so yeah. things, things that meet that criteria are known as strategy-proof. Like voting mechanisms, and that's sort of like why that that's kind of what they bring to the table. And so there's a couple of those, which I don't think are used for elections, but are used elsewhere. Which um maybe gotcha, which we can go into a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. So uh, the big result to know in social choice theory is Arrow's theorem. So let's just get the main idea behind this because this is the one that uh, I, I don't think we need to define it perfectly, but this is the one that people have to know, and if they're interested in, they should look up. Absolutely. So, I mean, so this one is. This? This one is definitely the starting place. Um, and so this was the first time that, yeah, so er, so Kenneth Arrow was an economist uh, in the mid 20th century, and he he really laid the foundation for social choice, um, most most famously through his impossibility theorem, where he said that, you know, any mechanism that involves people voting on three or more options, there is no voting system that can convert the ranked preferences of individuals into a community-wide ranking that meets a certain set of criteria. And the specific criteria that he cared about were the, um, the, the, the unanimity criteria, which is if everyone prefers X to Y individually, then the community as a whole should prefer X to Y. Yeah. And a lot of these things make a lot of sense. Like it, it would be crazy for that to be false. Right. Exactly. You're like, of, co- of course, you'd want that. Yeah. Um, the second criteria is non-dictatorship, which is that there's no one person who can determine the choice for everyone. Um, and so you, you'll, you know, if, if, if you if you look into the literature, you'll you'll find that people have all these proofs where they show that one voter, you know, if, if you're in a certain like configuration of votes for the whole community, there can be one voter who has the ability to, to determine the outcome in a way that is like, not really expected. Um, and so that's a that's a bad situation. Yeah. And and, um, and the third condition is it's known as the independence of, irre- of um, irrelevant alternatives. And that's basically saying that, you know, if you have three candidates, A, B and C. Um, the presence of C should not affect whether you prefer A or B, A over B or vice versa. So if I prefer A to B and then C shows up, I should not all of a sudden prefer B to A. Um, and, right. And that, that, that happens yeah. in our system a lot. It, that happens in our system. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, so, and so generally, you know, and, and kind of why this theorem was so important was that it was, it was phrased in a very general way such that many, many, many kinds of voting systems would fall into this framing. Um, and, right. so, and so, and so, and yeah, and so Arrow's theorem was held true for many, 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 many systems, which is why it became kind of the starting place for social choice. Because any system you developed, or most systems you developed, you could analyze in this framework. Right, and um, so the idea was you can't have all three of those. Yeah, well, no system that that meets the criteria that Arrow laid out, which is you know if you if you provide a ranking of, right. of candidates, there's no group ranking that satisfies those criteria. There's no me- gotcha. there's no method of coming up with a group ranking. That satisfies those criteria. So that, that that was what he laid out. Right. So voting voting is a hard problem, which is why you see such a variety of imperfect uh, imperfect options. Um, I did write down here as I was thinking about it. I feel like there's a connection between Arrow's theorem and Gödel's incompleteness theorem in the sense that Gödel says that there's no perfect set of logical axioms, doesn't leave anything out, and Arrow says there's no perfect electoral design, and uh, they're obviously they're not the same theorem. They're not like related, you know, in terms of mathematically. But I feel like it was, in a sense, like those are the main results that ensures that there'll always be debate and discussion about logic, and there'll always be d- debate and discussion about voting systems. And if if it was simple, if he simply sat down and said, "Oh," I, I figured it out. I did a bunch, bunch of math and I figured out this is the perfect voting system. Then social choice theory would essentially be over. Like it would be a very I mean, short, would have been a very short book. Right. Right. Um, so do you see what I'm saying there? Yeah. And actually I really, I remember when, when you sent over the questions, I, I looked at that one and I was thinking about it a lot for a long time this morning and it was, it was really fun to turn over. Um, and yeah. And so like, I, I think that, you know, what I, what, what I would say to that is that, I mean, you're right. They're they're not quite the same theorem, but I think that they both 
reflect the same like kind of fundamental reality, right? Because Gödel's theorem was basically saying that you know any 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 formal logical system of sufficient complexity would always contain some contradiction. Um, and, right. you know, and Douglas Hofstadter wrote about this very famously in his book, Little Usher Bach, which I would recommend to everyone. Uh, when the Pulitzer Prize, great read. Um, okay, I'll put that in. And, 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 and kind of, and like the way he sums it up is that there are unprovable truths, right? You, if, if you have any sort of formal complicated system, there's always going to be true things that you're not able to prove in that system. And that's sort of, I think, has like a nice, a nice poetic way to put it, which has like nice, you know, philosophical implications of unprovable truths, things that things that are true, but we cannot arrive at via like the methods of science. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and the way that, and the way that Gödel showed that was basically saying that, you know, you have a complex system that can describe itself. And when a system can describe itself, you sort of get this turning upon itself. And that is, it is from there that the contradiction emerges. Um, and yeah. so, you know, he, he brings in the work of uh, MC Escher, the artist with his staircases um, and, and, and Hofstadter, you know, the term he uses is, is sort of a strange loop to describe this, where a system turns upon itself and edits itself. So you could also imagine a program, a computer program that can change its own code. Uh, could, sure. Could have this property. I so, do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. So any, anytime you've got a system like that, that can change itself, all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, it's like the rules, it's like kind of the rules, we throw the rules out the window and now we're entering into kind of like a, an almost like mystical world where things are possible that we almost can't quite predict or reason about in language. Right. Um, which I think is like quite beautiful, but, um, but also presents a, presents a conundrum to us trying to, you know, assume we're trying to get a handle on the world that we live in. Right. Um, right. So I'm, I'm going to also link to episode 39 entitled paradox where I didn't, I kind of end mentioning Gödel's incompleteness theorem, but it's about some of the mathematical paradoxes that kind of led up to that. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. But then, but with arrow, Kind of the uh, the issue the issue sort of at hand here, um, and 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 this is sort of getting this is like points I think one of the more profound issues in economics is that you know we're trying to describe a social reality uh, using kind of formal notation, um, but but there's a gap between the world that we the world that we care about the sort of like social world of values and preferences and you know the the world of, of, of formal systems that we can actually analyze and 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 and, and you know, do math and analysis on. And, yeah. and, and ultimately it's because there's a gap between the world that we care about and are trying to understand and the tools we have of describing it. It, it, is, it is that it is that gap that causes the contradiction because we're trying to describe a reality using our formal tools, but the tools we have are not a perfect map of the reality. And so we, we get ourselves into corners, you know, yeah. and kind of like, so like so, social choice theory, even though, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's sort of mostly concerned with, with voting in elections um, really does does get it, I would say, the most fundamental like, epistemological questions in economics, which is how do we measure what people want? You know, and, and right. many, many economists, you know, I've been discussing this for years, questions of utility. Can we observe utility? Is utility implicit? Can we combine and add utility? Um, is it meaningful to compare utilities between individuals? Can we ever know it? Is it like is utility meaningful? I mean, a lot of a lot of the major heavy hitter economists in the in the in the twentieth century, Kenneth Arrow, Marcus Sen, and, and and others, have really made their you know they, they they kind of made their careers asking and answering like these these essential questions. Um, and so it's it's kind of nice that you know here we are again dealing with kind of fundamental questions of measurement and representation, which I think we touched a lot a little bit on in our last episode. But I just I find them so they're so fascinating and so and so like so rewarding to think about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This kind of leads into the the next thing that I had to say, which um, was that, like, in addition to the mathematical properties of an electoral system, there are these human issues too that really need to be considered that don't always come out in the mathematical model. Maybe, I suppose you could model some of them, but for example, you know, um, what about you know, there there could be fraud, there could be differences in information among voters. Um, different ballots designs uh, causing people to have different preferences. I mean, in theory, your preference shouldn't change if different candidates are listed on different slots in the ballot. <laughs> but, but we know that in real life, that, uh, that does happen. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, uh, yeah, that this is, you know, this is a very interesting issue. It's kind of interesting because in a sense, you can approach it formally. So, you know, earlier we talked about the, the kind of the game theory and the idea of strategy proof voting systems. And so, so there, there is a, a school of people that say, let's try to analyze people's behavior and assume that they're like kind of these, these actors that are trying to game the system and not just going you know, to be providing their like honest, independent input, you know, in a benevolent way. And like 
how far does that get us? And so that that's one school. But, you know, then to your point, there's like a lot more of these softer, like psychological factors affecting how people use our systems. And that sort of gets us into the realm of like UX and design. You know, and what, what do we think people yeah, absolutely. Way, but really that like they're going to think they're going to think this other way. Um, you know, something that something that I've done a lot of work on is uh, is, is voting systems and specifically like scales. And, um, and like, what's the right scale for, for capturing someone's interest, you know? And so a lot of us are familiar with the idea of like a Likert scale, which is, you know, strongly disagree, disagree, agree, strongly agree. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, they ask you that over the phone. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's also how we use, it's how we, you know, remember when we were at Foursquare, it's how, or it's how we rated candidates doing interviews. So. Right, right, right. Uh, and then know, the Foursquare, on the Foursquare app, the venues are like dislike and mess that's exactly. and remember, yeah and remember you you and you and stephanie did your work on on the rating system and you found that the maybe was really just like a polite a polite one you know and um, i remember uh yeah and so, so so specifically on the point of five point ratings versus you know three point or two point um you know a lot of people use like five point scales and and corner they're, they're sort of intuitively appealing on the grounds that well we can capture more nuance you know we can now we can capture like a more fine-grained preference from people um, you know, we can capture things like a three and a four different from a five. And that's the ideal. What we find in practice is that um, there's so much noise in how people use these scales. You know, maybe on Tuesday, I, I'm, you know, I would say a five, but on Thursday, I'm feeling cranky. So I'll say a three. Maybe someone yeah. else just like is really just like hates to be judgmental and just always gives four and fives. And there, there, there's so much of this noise in using the scale that even though in theory, it captures more information in practice, there's so much noise that the only meaningful signal that we get is, you know, good or bad, which is what, what you found explicitly when you were doing the, when you were doing the, the ratings for the venues, but also, for example, um, both Netflix and YouTube began with five point scales, but then they both abandoned them in favor of simple, like binary uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on the grounds that the signal they were getting was very noisy. And there was a paper that um, I read recently by Heinrich Nax, who talked about who like analyzed you know, he analyzed Amazon reviews and he found that, you know, over time, eventually all that really matters are five point and one point. And the reason why is because even though, and going back to the thing we were saying at the beginning about, we assume people are just going to be giving their honest preference and then the, and without, without really thinking about the aggregation. But the truth is that people are aware of the aggregation. So they vote not just to give preference, but they vote, they vote to affect the outcome, right? People are right, voting right. to the outcome. And so what will happen is that, you know, say there's an item that's got 10,000 reviews, and, um, and you either like it or don't like it. And if you like it, you're going to give it a five because ultimately it's not about giving, giving it a four. It's about pushing the review up, right? If I like it, I want their score to go up from wherever it is. And if I dislike right, right. it, I want the score to go down. So when you really think about someone, what's, what people are trying to do when they rate things is either make the score higher or lower. They're only really going to use five or one, you know, because that, that's what they if want they have to a do. Opinion. Exactly. Yeah. You know. If I, if I, if I dislike something, I want the score to be lower. So I'm going to give it a lower, like a one to pull it down. I could give it a three, but that would, that would not be fulfilling my aim of reducing the score. Um, and so in practice, what a lot of people find is that really all that's meaningful at, at the scale that we're talking about is binary plus or minus. I'm not saying that in specialized settings with, you know, like a, with people with, with particular training, you know, more nuanced scales aren't useful, but in certain, in certain settings, specifically like very general settings, um, what a lot of people are finding is that um, like nuanced scales are, 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 are in practice, not as useful, um, or, or, or have a lot more noise in them than simple, like, uh, binary, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down scales. Um, yeah, I always get worried uh, in these like, uh, personality tests where they're like, answer each question, yes or no. And just do the first one that comes to mind. Don't think about it too much. I'm like, I'm going to answer differently every time I take this test. Totally. Um, and like, and, 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 you know, another thing too, to say, the, the other thing that you found when you were doing, uh, the, the four square venues was that, you know, people wanted to have a, a medium option, right? So, you know, we could say, well, yeah. so people only, people only like, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. So let's just give them thumbs up, thumbs down. But then it was like a whole, a whole UX question where people want to feel like they can give you a medium, like people want an easy, people want a way out. They right? don't want to hurt the business. Exactly. So it's like too much. So it's like there's a whole there's a whole art there too where even if even if we know that this scale is going to give us the most robust signal, um, there's like a whole usability aspect where people want to feel like they're giving you like a medium answer even though we know that like the the, the neutral answer is really a one but like people just want to give a neutral answer and so it's like yeah so it's hard it's it's tricky tricky to make a system right because and this 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 almost this almost connects to the to the to the girdle thing which is that you know the system turns upon itself 
And here people, you know, we have a system and the system is not independent of the voters, but the voters understand the system and they react to it. And so we're, everything's kind of in this strange loop where this, the system affects itself and there's like no really clean way Absolutely. Out. Especially when you're designing app. And that middle option actually gave us a lot of data, um, you know, for example, on sentiment analysis. So we were able to find the words most commonly associated with mixed reviews, like it's okay, was highly correlated with that that middle option. So it really helped us build better language models on the on the machine learning side. So that was pretty cool. All right. Yeah. So I want I want to talk to you about your recent paper. Uh, first, you know, with the rise of the blockchain economy, we have seen a renewed interest in voting systems. So could you tell us why that is? And let's try to do it in um, in a way for people who might not be too familiar with blockchain. Yeah. If you've been listening to Local Maximum the whole time, you might be pretty familiar with blockchain, but I don't want to force everyone to listen to every episode. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to do whatever, I, you know, I've got a whole little spiel. I mean, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people talk about blockchain and I think a lot of people try to explain like the underlying technology with the consensus and the proof of work and all that. And I really think that all those things are a little bit of a distraction for our, for our, for our purposes. I think the really important things to understand is that blockchain gives us a couple of things that we didn't really have before. Um, and, 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 you know, like, I think, I think the most important of them is the idea of essentially programmable money, right? So that, that, right. That, that's what we have. We have money that we can program um, and we can write code that actually manipulates real money directly. Um, and that is a pretty remarkable affordance. Um, right, right. We have, we, have pro- we have programmable money. We have trusted computation. We can write, you know, what we call smart contracts. All that term has become like a, a little, it's, a, it's kind of up for debate whether that's the best way to describe what's going on. But, but we can now deal with value in a programmatic computational way, um, in a way that we just couldn't before. And so a lot of things that were previously impossible or very difficult are now, at least in principle, like very doable. And so a lot of people are excited about that and are basically saying, like, now's our chance to take it from the top and just sit down and figure out with everything that we've learned for the, from the last however long we've been trying to live together, you know, let's take these new tools and, and, and build something better. And you know a lot of a lot of people are very critical, but I, I think there's something to be said because you know going back to the the Federalist Papers and the, the whole you know the whole early America thing, like that's kind of what they did. They were like, you know what, we have a chance to do it over. Let's learn lessons from history and just build something that is a little bit better than what came before, and like see how that works. And you know it worked pretty well, you know, for a while. And so I think yeah. that the idea that we can take it from the top using new tools is not a priori like wrong. You know, I think that there's definitely problems that people are maybe not excited to think about, you know, the most important one being the idea of kind of like the, the terms like the analog hole and that no matter how great your technology is, you know, there's a gap between someone's finger and the screen, you know, or someone's finger in the keyboard. And, you know, there's no, there's no amount of, 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 of amazing, of secure code or whatever that can prevent someone from inserting a little, a little virus that just changes, you know, your, your A to a B. Right. There's, there's, there's nothing, sure. nothing that we can do. You know, someone could, someone could mislabel the keyboard and, you know, it's so like, and so like, that's kind of like maybe even fundamentally impossible to really solve. And so a lot of like voting theorists and of which there are many have, have come out very strongly and saying, you know, saying, be careful about the blockchain because even no matter how good the trusted computation and the smart contracts are, there's this analog hole that we can never fill. And if you trust that there's going to be no problems, then everything is going to be destroyed because someone is going to write a little virus and we're not going to have the tools to deal with it because um, we're not prepared. So I think that's the argument for skepticism. Um, but despite that, you know, we do have new tools and f- that, that does mean that there are new possibilities and figuring out what those are and how can we, how can we implement them in a, in a reasonable way without, without exposing ourselves to, to new risks um, is, a, is a question that a lot of people are excited about. So. Yeah. And so I think one of the things to be excited about voting is, you know, you talked about programmable money. It's like, well, you could program money to be distributed um, in accordance to an election, essentially. Yeah. Um, and the election could have people and it could involve people or it could involve machines, basically anyone who could provide data as to what their vote is. And um, and there are so many different things that you could do with it. Uh, more than one would think. And your application, I believe, does something like that. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what your application does. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, so as Max alluded to, um, I recently published a paper along with a number of my colleagues at Colony. Um, that's the company I work. It's a, it's an Ethereum-based startup. 
in the sort of in the future of workspace. So we're building a platform for open organizations, um, and the idea is that work in the future will be much more flexible than it is today. And we want to build tools to to facilitate people running their businesses in a much more of a flexible, um, in a more flexible, non hierarchical um, type of way, in which people's influence can sort of wax or wane depending on the work that they do. Um, new people can come in. The, the boundaries of the firm will be more porous. And so that, that's kind of what we that's kind of what we're about. That's sort of our vision. Um, and cool. the work, yeah. yeah. So the paper that we published is is really in line with that. So the uh, the title of the paper is called. Let me pull it up. It's a decentralized capital allocation via budgeting boxes, and, and kind of the the, the the kind of the theory there, and this goes back to, to, to sort of the Eros theorem and, and the social choice thing. You know, what we said at the beginning was that a lot of social choice has been preoccupied with electing candidates, um, you know, in various ways, and kind of the kind of the inherent limitation there is that electing candidates is a like the outcome is is discrete, right? Like there's one discrete winner, and everyone else is not a winner. Right, um, and so you know wh- wh- when you, when you're insisting on having discrete outcomes, you know you you kind of you open yourself up to problems, and um, and specifically uh, going back to Arrow, his uh, independence of a relative alternatives thing um, is sort of a criteria that a lot of people have been saying. You know, maybe this is not so important, you know, because maybe this is not even true. Like I think we'd like to think that everything is kind of independent and, and they don't relate, but is that is that really true in in in, in how we think? I mean, you know. There's 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 a cognitive scientist named Elnar Rash, who talks a lot about how, you know mental concepts are fundamentally relational. Um, things things don't really make sense in absolutes. Everything is relational, and so if we're asking going back to the question of measurement, you know if we really want to understand how people think and how they value things, you know but by, by by taking things that are fundamentally relational and asking people to 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 to, to write them down in sort of an absolute way, is like it's sort of I don't want to. You're not really missing the point, but you're 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 misrepresenting an aspect of reality, and 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 like how could that not but lead to contradiction? So right. So instead of asking people what's the, what should we spend the money on, you say is it more important to spend it on X or Y? Exactly. And so and sort of what what we've done is we say all right, there there is no independence of relevant of irrelevant alternatives. Everything affects everything else, and everything is defined in terms of everything else. That was the first thing that we were just like, this is just what we think is true. And the second thing, and the second thing was that, you know what? Like the outcomes don't have to be discrete. There doesn't have to be one winner. What if the outcome was continuous? You know, what if instead of finding a single winner, we were looking for a distribution over the winners or a budget, um, which then we could turn into a ranking, right? So now instead of saying we have to figure out the one best winner, we can say, let's have, let's have fractional victories and then do something with that. And what we ended up doing was, was saying, instead of electing winners, we're going to allocate a budget. And so now we can, we can ask people their preferences in it, what we think is a more intuitive, uh, real, n- natural way, which is pairwise preferences, where things are only valued in relation to everything else. And then we say, all right, instead of picking a single winner, let's figure out relatively how strong the candidates are, and then we can allocate resources to them in proportion. So you know, instead of having a winner-take-all system, we can have a winner gets 60%, and everyone else gets you know, 10 or 20 or 15%. And that's and that's fine. And so we're able to we're able to have the outcome reflect the sort of underlying social reality more closely than um, these other systems have in the past. Okay. And- so I, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't had my head in this system for very long. So I these could be su- stupid questions that I have. Uh, but the first one is like, uh, well, first of all, do people have to vote on every single uh, pair? Do they have to rank? every single potential budget item or are there two where you could say i don't know really a whole lot about this topic so i'm going to just kind of abstain absolutely so it is not required that everyone vote on every single pair um you know the more the more coverage that we get you know the the the, the more that we can argue that our result is is accurate and legitimate but because it's so easy to aggregate preferences um you can have you know if you have a large voting group 100 or 1000 or more people each one of them can submit 10, 20, 30 preferences, and then we can put them all together and get a result that's pretty strong. So because it's so easy to aggregate preferences, um, individual voters don't have to submit a full set. Um, but you know, the more that they submit, the, the better the results will be. But it's not necessary that everyone votes completely. And so it's sort of like a, it's kind of an implementation or deployment question of you know, how much do we want from individual voters? How big is our voting pool? So there's, you have some flexibility. Yeah. 
in that sense, but it's not required that everyone vote on everything. So, so yes, let me ask a question about like joining one of these organizations, uh, how you see it happening, because, you know, let's say, you know, I have a bunch of money and I can buy into this organization with nine other people so that I can be voting with 10 other people on the, uh, you know, on, on the budget preferences. What is the benefit of doing that versus just taking the money that I have and distributing it myself how I want to do it? Totally. It's a great question. Um, I would say that kind of the, where, where the system that we're describing shines and, and for, 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 for clarification, I'll make the point that the, the colony protocol sort of as a whole is, 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 is sort of in parallel to the mechanism that we're describing this new paper. So the mechanism that we're describing is an additional tool that we can incorporate uh, into a number of, of, of sort of um, we can use it in a number of situations but the colony protocol as a whole is, is slightly separate and, and, and off to the side. Um, but, um, but to your point, um, the, the real sort of advantage of these systems is, is not when we have a bunch of, like, say, limited, we have a bunch of general partners coming together to, to, to create a venture. Um, in that case, one can make an argument that people should have a say in proportion to what they bring to the table. But the setting that we care about more is when there's a shared pool of resources that we have to manage as a commons. So say, say you're at a company that's making revenue. Because um, you, you're selling a product or a service, and you have to sure. decide how do we want to allocate this shared revenue. Um, or let's say there's a, let's say there's a, like a, a shared, um, yeah, or like a shared budget, or like a say a, a grant fund we want to allocate over a number of projects. So so where where this really comes into play is where there's a sort of like a, a shared common resource we want to allocate collectively, but we can't say you know kind of a priori how much of that resource is owned by any individual. Um, so I would say yeah, that's, so this yeah, that's, is, that's, 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 that's the setting that we're in. This is an innovation on like corporate governance, um, you know, or any type of governance, like nonprofit counts too, where it's like, um, you know, now you kind of have a board of directors and uh, an executive team and all that and various, various team budgets. And so uh, that kind of has worked the same way. Uh, well, I, I feel like... Um, you're innovating in that space, and that could change uh, quite a bit over the coming years. I mean, we, we're we're cautiously optimistic about about this about this work. I mean, we think that it it does do a number of things that are, I would say, like innovative slash just you know useful. You know, we think that we're looking at these problems in a slightly different way, and sort of by almost like cutting the Gordian knot. You know, we just say that actually, you know, that problem that everyone else is solving is like not the right problem. We're just going to solve a different problem. And this problem is just easier to solve with different tools, you know? And so yeah. it's almost like there's a joke that I heard once in a math lecture, which is, uh, you know, instead of instead of shooting the, the arrow with the target, you just shoot the arrow and then paint the target around the arrow, Yeah. Uh, which I'm like, you know, maybe not, you know, why not? That's the real arrows theorem. Exactly right. Um, but yeah, but um, kind of the kind of the, the question that we were answering is like, why why is it always about electing leaders or voting on policies, actions which have discrete outcomes? You know, why can't we just make it about managing resources? You know, I remember once I was a you know before, you know a number of years ago I was involved in in in, in a couple of organizations, and I remember at the time I was you know I was younger and I was very like gung ho idealistic and thinking you know I was just writing passing policies all the time and I was so proud of myself for like we're passing all these policies we're really governing. You know, and then only years later, I realized that none of the policies we passed did anything because no one cared about them and they were totally irrelevant. But what really mattered was uh, was the budgeting process and how the organization decided to use its resources in the next year. And that was where the real decisions were made. You know, you can pass yeah. all the that you want, but if the funding isn't there, nothing's going to happen. And so right, right. The, the, the central sort of idea is that, you know, instead of governing via electing representatives or instead of governing via passing policies, let's govern via budgets, um, you know, and we, we can allocate resources here or there, depending on, on what we think is important. And, and that is, that is, that is governance that is maybe more, more, I don't want to say more powerful, but, but more flexible than, than voting on leaders or, uh, voting on policies. Um, because a, because the outcome space is continuous. Um, it can be adjusted flexibly, um, with, with very little consequence. There, there are a lot of computational advantages, to, to doing it this way um, that we think make uh, it a compelling a compelling tool in the toolkit. Um, yeah, yeah. It is based on a pretty straightforward statistical model, which uh, we can get into another time. Um, uh, we are kind of running out of time here, but I do want to say, uh, you know, 
I think that it is a, a really cool project, and I'm really glad that you guys, uh, Colony, are innovating in this space. And um, tell us where we can find more information. Um, absolutely. So there's a couple things that I would recommend. So if you care, if you're interested in voting systems, I would highly recommend you look at. Um, so Nikki Case is a a multimedia artist who makes interactive explanations. So taking aspects of game design to 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 make sort of like long interactive tutorials on on various topics and game theory, um, computer science, etc. So there there's an amazing one on on ballots. It's called "To Build a Better Ballot: An Interactive Guide to Alternative Voting Systems." Uh, which is a, a very, very fun, interactive look at a lot of voting systems and, and kind of where and how they fail. So that one, uh, I would recommend you can you can go to it at ncase.me slash ballot. Um, so I would recommend everyone who wants to understand voting systems review this. It's an amazing resource. Um, in addition, I would recommend, obviously, our paper, um, Decentralized Capital Allocation via Budgeting Boxes, which you can find at colony.io slash budgetbox.pdf. Yep. All this will be linked at localmaxradio.com slash 48. And, um, so. and yeah, and if you want a little bit more of the sort of, and this is just like kind of self-promotion, if you want a little bit more of the kind of the philosophy around kind of the, 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 the fundamental measurement question, the idea of mental concepts being relational, the sort of the, the, the utility of pairwise preferences and like why they're a good way to go. Um, I, you know, I, I wrote a, a long thesis on exactly this question when I was in graduate school. So, uh, that is a resource that oh, I would say. I didn't know. That. Yeah, we will dive into your thesis. Absolutely. Um, you're welcome. I mean, the, the the first twenty pages are like a are, are a philosophy, an essay on the history of science. You don't have to apologize for your thesis. <laughs> right. Like I, th- I, it's kind of wacky. I put a lot of energy into it. You know, maybe you'll get a kick out of it. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. so I think those those are those would be things I would I would check out. And um, yeah, those would be places to start. All right, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Max. Always a pleasure. I hope that discussion was as thought-provoking for you as it was for me. I um, I like to play around with voting systems in theory a lot, but when you actually sit down and discuss it with someone, you find kind of all the complex issues that don't always appear in the models. And I mean really discuss it like we, we, we did, not like, you know, that you often have political discussions which are colored by um, – by, you know, <laughs> which side you might be supporting at the time. So, no, this is a good discussion. And um, maybe uh, maybe this will also give some of you ideas on what we could do with blockchain technology. Again, all of this information is going to be on localmaxradio.com slash 48. All the links. Next week on The Local Maximum, my guest says that all the technology designed to optimize, optimize, optimize your life might actually be ruining your life. That's Daniele Carcia, and he has some ideas on how to improve urban exploration. Really worth listening to. Uh, Listen next week on The Local Maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna say.